Hey y'all, it's your boy Jonathan here, and I have two dope opportunities for RTWD that, that I need your support on. The first is a grant opportunity for RTWD called Podcash. Now all you need to do is click on the uh, support or write a love letter to RTWD uh, in the show notes and just tell them why you love the show. That is due on March 4th. So if you could do that as soon as you hear this, stop this recording, go ahead and do that, type something out real quick, that would be awesome. The second one is uh, I submitted RTWD for a Quill Award. And this is a way that you could just nominate RTWD for best show, best host, best um, uh, society and culture podcast, any of those things that RTWD fits in. Now that deadline is at the end of this month, but I would love as many submissions and nominations as possible. So if you feel so inclined, please go ahead and check out the show notes on ways to support and nominate RTWD. Thanks, y'all. All right, here's the show. What's good, y'all? My name is Jonathan Dumas, and this is the Real Talk with Dumas podcast, where I have real conversations with the people I see every day because we don't know what we miss until we miss them. And I got another dope episode for y'all this week. I know I say that every single week, but it's always true. But wanted to share some dope ways to continue to support the show, you know, besides just listening. So the first one is liking, subscribing, sharing, and leaving a review of the podcast. It actually really helps folks discover the show. Uh, another way is to follow RTWD on IG or TikTok or I think those are the only places I am. But you can follow us at RTWD Podcast. You know, send your boy a DM. Love that um, constructive feedback. Or just to say hi, love that too. And then finally, joining the Real Fam Patreon page. By financially supporting the show, you are literally, and I mean literally, helping the show run. Because this is not free. Um, anyways, uh, a big shout out to those who are in the Real Fam. Love you so much. Um, anyways. Now on to my guest. This week, I am joined by Maria Wright. Maria is the founder of Maria Wright Consulting, which provides innovative, high value, and culturally responsive training content for professionals. I cannot wait to talk to Maria about all the things that she does um, in the child welfare space and also how, how white supremacy culture impacts intra-agency dynamics. This is going to be um, a heavy episode, but also good information, y'all. So stay tuned. Here's Maria. Maria, thank you so much for joining us. How are you today? Well, I'm doing great. And I just want to give a shout out to the real fam. Thank you for having <laughs> me, Jonathan. Um, it's definitely an honor to be on your podcast. And, you know, I'll just give it here and now for the historical context. This is my first podcast experience. So I'm really excited to be here with the real fam. And I really appreciate you, Jonathan, for giving me this opportunity. Listen, you're coming on the a, a uh, Real Talk with Do My Podcast for the first time. Shout out to you, you know what I'm saying, for trusting me to be your first podcast, um, first podcast venture. So it's, I'll tell you this, it's going to be a good time. It's going to be fun. Obviously, we're going to be talking about some heavy stuff based off of your expertise and want to give space and room for that. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for coming on. This is awesome. And you're not the first one to be the first um, <laughs> podcast person. So don't worry about that. Um, but, uh, would love for you. I know I read your bio, which is incredibly impressive, but I would love for you to just share a little bit about yourself to the real fam. Absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing the bio and I'll just add on to that. 
Um, I am a black woman. I am mother of two, so I have a son and a daughter. Um, so I'm raising two black children here in the Bay Area of California, uh, which in itself is so uh, you know convoluted. I'm a wife, and uh, you know I really come from a small town of Humboldt uh, in Eureka and Humboldt County. Um, so I'm proud of where I've cam- come from. But as soon as I could, I left, and I left and moved to the big city. Mm. really integrated into the culture here of Oakland, um, Oakland, California, and then, uh, you know, moved down to San Diego where I went to uh, a community college, a junior college. I'm a proud, uh, you know, transfer student into San Diego State University. I was really involved in student leadership there and learned a lot from my peers and professors. And uh, I knew that San Diego was amazing, but once it became the point where I was no longer at the beach every day, I was like, I can leave. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, if if I'm not going to be at the beach every day, I don't need to be here um, because that's the beauty of San Diego. That and I wanted to wear Uggs. So I came back (laughs) um, to go to grad school at um, Cal State East Bay um, and really, really enjoyed the cultural aspect there within the professors, the diversity of who you're being, um, you know, taught by and, and who you're able to connect with. Did research there, um, you know, completed internships and really grew and learned a lot as a young professional. Uh, right after graduation, went to work for a county um, in California. And uh, there I am a dependency investigator. So I'm investigating child and abuse on a daily basis. Mm. Um, and I'm litigating the welfare and institution code in the court. Um, but really I see my role as supporting families through the court process because there's such um, a lack of understanding and knowledge, even within the social work field, but definitely within our communities. So, you know, finding ways to support the families has been important to me. And with that, I've branched out because I know that I have um, I have stuff that I want to share. I have stuff that I want to give to the communities um, through what I learned in school as a social worker. Mm. So I started my own consulting business where I'm a, you know I share my social work skills. I provide consultation and support, and I'm a trainer and facilitator. So um, almost on a weekly basis, I'm providing training content and facilitating discussions for other professionals. Sometimes my peers. Sometimes people that are in uh, positions uh, that I aspire to, such as CEOs, presidents, directors, uh, and managers, and you know supervisors, and and so forth, and as well as my uh, you know my peers and colleagues and peer advocates and parent advocates and youth and students. So it's really amazing being able to uh, share my thought process and my um, very limited, but what I do know um, in regards to social work share that with others. And more recently, I uh, became a lecturer in spring 2020, where I now get to uh, cultivate a learning experience for uh, a group of students who are moving through their undergraduate degree. And it's such an honor and privilege to be a blimp in anyone's uh, lived experience. So to be able to uh, meet people in different points of their life, whether it's um, moving through uh, a very, very rugged system, such as child welfare, or engaging with them in their professionalism, or meeting them as a student. Um, being a social worker is really, really uh, my passion, and I feel very privileged. So that's a little bit about me and kind of what moves me. Yeah, no, thank you so much for sharing all that. Um, that that That's like quite the journey and like quite the experience. 
Um, I'm, that's why I like started this podcast. Cause I'm always curious about how they, how folks landed uh-huh, on what they want to do, where they wanted to go. I think when I was in my undergrad experience, I, I, I remember like, um, my mom would never say this, but like, she told me since I was a little kid that I was going to be a lawyer. And then I just like adopted that thing. And I was like, I'm going to be a lawyer. Like, duh, you know, until I got into my undergrad, my undergrad, like real fan knows this. I got into undergrad. I panicked second semester of my senior year of college. And uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I kept asking people what they, uh, what they were passionate about. How'd you land um, with all this? So um, I'm always curious and, and um, uh, nosy about how folks landed at where they did. So throughout all that, even like your upbringing and everything like that, how did you decide on like such a, I mean, honestly, like trying like profession as social work, it's like emotionally draining, psychologically draining, all this stuff. So how did you kind of like get into this work and decide this is what you wanted to do? Yeah. Yeah. Well, first I just want to like speak to your mom's passion. I just love that. And I resonated with it because my 10, almost 10 and four year old definitely have a track of being an engineer and dentist. So. Okay. <laughs> you know, vibes around, this is what you're going to be, baby, from, from grade school. So mm-hmm. love that, love that energy. Um, you know, when I was in sixth grade, I uh, had opportunity to pick my elective, pick what I wanted to do for my extracurricular activity. And there next to my, um, next to my middle school was a special day school. So there were students there, peers, um, children, youth, who needed additional support, whether that was a physical, developmental, or cognitive level of support. They needed that additional support, sometimes Mm -hmm. part of the day, and then for uh, a lot of them for all of the day. And my decision was to be a, you know, a student peer there, volunteer there, and use that as my elective experience. And so um, each day I would walk across uh, the parking lot to that school site, and volunteer there and engage with the with my peers with the other mm. um, youth that were um were there for for their school day and i think it was really where my passion around supporting other people who may not be as able-bodied as me whether that's mentally emotionally or physically um supporting them and wanting to be the voice for other people who cannot speak for themselves mm. so i started there But really now I am more focused on empowering the voices of others rather than being that voice for them. Right. Mm -hmm. I started out, I really wanted to be a voice for others. I saw, you know, children and youth um, and people that are disadvantaged don't really have a voice. And I knew that if I got to a position or leveraged my leadership to be able to share their voice or share their experience, then it would be powerful. But now what I realize is that it's not me sharing their voice. It's me creating the space for them to share it for themselves. Mm. And when necessary for me to articulate or document their voice in in, in the paperwork or in the court reports or in the um, storytelling that I share. So, you know, when I think about my journey was really, you know, being a voice, but now it's empowering voices. I I love that. um, I love that differentiation there, too, and like the transformation there. Because it's, I, I well, I want to like hear, uh, hear the difference. Like, can you share like the difference there and, and what you found um, after like you made that switch from like, you know, being their voice to like empowering their voice? Right. So when you think about my work in child welfare, um, a way that I would just be a voice is I would just talk about, oh, this parent is experiencing this or they told me that um, 
because of their childhood or because of what they've gone through. Um, this is why they parent this way. This is why they experience things this way. Hmm. But what I've learned is it takes a little bit more than just getting that from the client. Now I want to talk about, well, what was that experience like? What happened there? What's causing you to be worried or fearful as a parent now or discipline or engage with your child in this manner? Really pulling a biopsychosocial um, with my clients. And then now I document it in their language. I don't try to mm. um, reword so it's more, um, you know, legal or, you know, more appropriate for a court report. I document in their words, if necessary, use quotations. So it's the client's actual word and voice mm. coming through what I write. Our written, so I'll, I'll talk a little bit more, a little bit more in a moment about uh, the white supremacy um, culture. But one of the characteristics is worshiping the written word. Yeah. And so my fear is that my colleague after me will worship the written word that I've put out there, and that it's not exactly what the client wanted or said. Mm. So, um, you know, last year I had a client and. Um, and there was a moment where um, there was an issue of this client didn't want to sign a form. Mind you, this is a, um, a language preference form, right? Okay. So everyone signs it. Everyone should be able to sign it, right? You think anyone can sign it. This is a, um, you know, a black man. He can speak. He speaks English. He understands English. And, you know, you would think that he'd also be able to read and write in English. And so uh, there was a colleague who thought that because the father did not sign the form that he was refusing. And, and what that meant was that he was refusing to engage and didn't want to talk about what was happening. Mm. Then when I meet with the father, I share him that same form and ask him if he would sign it. And if he would like for me to read it to him. And so what I learned was that this father never wanted to be resistant or refuse, but that he needed additional support, mm. which meant reading the document to him. Yeah. So read it, signed it, made sure that everyone moving forward knows that to provide his voice or to share his voice, you need to engage him in a way that he can receive it and also make sure that he can be heard. Yeah. Now that's, when I, yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. yeah. So, so when I, when I say empowering the client's voice, when the report was written, the court report is a little over 20 pages plus the attachment. So closer to 25, when it was all completed, I brought it to him and instead of handing it to the client, which we most often do, and then asking them to read it and sign it, I read to him that court report front to back, top mm. to bottom. Yeah. And you know what he said at the end of that? When I finally finished everything, and I had checked in with him throughout, you know, of course, it's a long time to check in throughout, but you know what he said at the end of it, Jonathan? Yeah. That was exactly what happened. And that's exactly what was said. And that's exactly what, you know, what unfolded. Mm. Even though not all of it was in his favor, and even though some of it was uncomfortable for him to hear me read, to know that I documented over 20 page of a court report, read it to the client, and what he did was confirm that that's exactly what was said and happened, then I know that I'm empowering my client's voice through my written word, which now the judge is going to read. Yeah. And that's just, it's just a, it's a different vibe to know that like you have somebody that's like really truly representing you, right? Like I think I used to work in child welfare as well in like the HR department and like I'm recruiting these folks and I didn't I didn't stay there long because the organization itself was just not good. But the um but like, you know, I I, I 
I just like would see people come and like it was very off, very few folks that like wanted to give empower, like mm-hmm. you're saying, empower those that are like, you know, experiencing all the things that, you know, unfortunately children experience or whether it be abuse, um, uh, being unhoused, all the all the like, you know. And so like there's no there's no they they just like take over and just like, you know, nope, like I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll do this, I'll do that, telling them what they want, telling them what they receive all these different things. And there was actually a specific instance where like, um, where like it was a, uh, I went in with the director at the time and um, I was just going to view the, the um, foster, the foster homes. Cause I hadn't been there before. And like, I'm just like hearing them talk, these two people talk about like their thoughts on these kids of like why they act the way they do or whatever. And I'm like, y'all don't even know who they are. You know, their names, but like you don't know their stories, you don't know, and and you just see stuff like that so consistently and so um, often. Um, and you mentioned about like the white supremacy that exists um, in these in these systems. We could just get into that right now because I just saw a ton of white saviorism when I worked for this organization. That like it was just uh, it made me really uncomfortable, like incredibly uncomfortable, especially predominantly working with black and brown kids. So what have you seen um, in your work um, in regards to like white supremacy um, and its impact on interagency um, dynamics? Definitely. Uh, the social work field and child welfare is built on white saviorism. Um, mm-hmm. And, and you know, what I see is that it's not just white people, you mm-hmm. know, so if you're a white person and you cringe. I'm not just talking about you. And if you're a black person, you said, mm-hmm, I'm talking about you too. Yeah. <laughs> it's not just uh, one person, right? It's really, um, so when you think about decision-making, we base our decisions off of social conditioning mm-hmm. and everyone has some sort of white supremacy culture inside of them, inside of their decision-making and how they operate. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you think about, are you a perfectionist? Like, are you someone who, has to have things perfect or expects other people to have things perfectly done? Or do you feel like some sense of urgency all the time? Like not just the times where you're running late, but just in life in general, like some sense of urgency that has to get done or it has to be, you know, I have to get there right now. Or, you know, when you think about receiving feedback, do you feel a sense of like defensiveness or feel, you know, entitled to defend your ideas or your thoughts, your behaviors? that all is encompassed in the white supremacy culture. So it's not just a matter of our skin tone or maybe our ideology or our beliefs, but really how we operate or how we engage other people and communicate. Mm-hmm. And so when you think about the white supremacy culture within child welfare, it impacts our decision-making based on how we are socially conditioned. Mm-hmm. And until we realize that, you know, the idea of being perfect or having things perfect or being timely in our um, execution of our work. Uh, you know, those type of things are really rooted even in the training of how we're trained. But it goes back to, um, you know, not just our training, but how we're taught to engage people, how we're taught to communicate, how we're taught to, you know, even our ego or um, our expectations. So, how this plays out in child welfare is um, maybe a worker will try to engage their clients in a particular way, try to advocate for the client similar to what you've shared and upper management disagrees. 
mm-hmm. right? And so because of that hierarchical relationship or that power struggle um, or even the power hoarding of decision making, it can play out where if we disagree, um, you know, the person of power will make the decision. And my frustration around that is it ultimately impacts the client because mm-hmm. of the intra-agency disagreements or dynamics. That is what, you know, funnels the decision making. And that is what is impacting the clients. I mean, think about um, interagency dynamics around, um, you know, should this family get services or is this family being serviced enough? Are we, you know, providing this family the most adequate service and who is uh, worthy of that service, right? Thinking about power hoarding. Mm-hmm. Um, am I going to provide the ultimate level of uh, case management, case advocacy, social work for this family? Or do I not feel like this family is entitled to this or deserving um, for certain reasons, right? Really mm-hmm. like about the biases that play behind that. Um, the implicit bias, most most commonly known, but different types of biases that are playing out behind that, uh, you know, basing your decision off of how do you fit in, how does this family fit into your idea of family or expectations? Here in California, as you know, there's a wide diversity of family and culture and Mm -hmm. how people um, engage. And it's unfortunate that uh, in in our position as a child welfare worker, it's only one way. Mm -hmm. Again, another white supremacy culture. There's only one right way. Mm -hmm. And that's not the case. Uh, And so we perpetuate these things into the community and our communities ultimately being impacted negatively based off of that. Yeah, no, I I just remember even seeing that, you know, like, oh, gosh, yeah, like even going back to like, I'll put a pin in that. But even going back to like your, um, your comment about how, you know, it's not just like you're talking to white people, you're talking to like black folks, too, that like, I think that there is um, folks who are like complicit in that those acts, right? There's like a, a place of privilege to have like some power and authority on like decision making, like what happens to you? Can you receive these services? And like, it's really, or even even like you had mentioned before, how like there are certain standards that they have to abide by or do, um, and they hold these families, which like it's a complete. It could be a completely different culture. They could be, um, yeah, just like a wide array. We live in California, so it's like a wide array of culture, languages, um, uh, immigration statuses, uh, nationalities, whatever have you. Uh, but you're expected to do this, this, and this. And it varies even from county to county. And so it can be incredibly difficult, convoluted, and confusing for the for people who are just honestly looking for support. Um, but those who even have like, uh, one thing my mom and my grandma always say, just because um, not all skin folk are kin folk, you know what I'm saying? Like, even though you could be like in, in a place where you could actually lend that support and empower um, the, the people that you're supposed to support, um, mm-hmm. There really is there. You, you won't. Sometimes you don't even find it that way. It's like, oh, sorry, like against the rules, or oh, sorry, like you can't do this. But I will, I will say to the credit of like you know social workers and, and those systems, like incredibly underpaid, incredibly you know, un unsupported, and all those different things. Um, like it's just not. We don't have like a in 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 the U.S. It's not an infrastructure that's like greatly invested in, um, unfortunately. Uh, but like. Oh gosh! All right, I can go on all day. But the 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 um. But I'm I'm curious for for you. What is what has been some of the things that you've? Uh, I mean, you've shared one example of like helping that father. 
But like, what are, what are some other things that you see that can be done from your perspective as somebody who's in this profession? Yeah, yeah. And I want to speak to, you know, not, we're, we're not all kin folks. Like, just because we're, you know, there's black people that work in the system doesn't mean that the system's not racist. Mm-hmm. And my frustration is that, of course, you know, you, you, you uh, shared, you know, working in HR and child welfare, like, you know, black folks are hired. Um, Mexican, Hispanic uh, folks are hired. African folks are hired to work the front lines. Absolutely. And so more commonly now in certain counties, in certain areas, you will be presented with a um, person of color at your door saying that they're your child welfare worker. So it's not necessarily that white, uh, white older woman who's that social worker knocking at your door. Uh But I say that to say, as you move up, sometimes some counties, there are still people of color and some there are uh, predominantly white folks. But regardless, the outcomes for our families have not changed. Disproportionality has not changed drastically mm-hmm. to where black and brown folks are not being disproportionately um, interviewed, uh, referred to CPS or engaged or have a case open for CPS. Disproportionality has dropped a little bit. Mm-hmm. That's because of decision-making tools and algorithms and certain things have uh, streamlined how decisions are made. But my question and my thought and something I'm still grappling with is, does it does having a front line, so first line uh, workers, having that you're primarily uh, diverse within cultures and sexuality and, uh, you know, uh, you know, all the all the beautiful diversity aspects front line. Is that enough? Mm. Or does management and upper management and leadership, as they say, does there need to be diversity in their inclusion within that and true equity amongst that? Mm-hmm. And where does the work need to begin? Does it need to be uh, top down or bottom up? Or do mm-hmm. we all just need to simply do the work? Oftentimes people think about a system as being something obsolete, like, oh, that's the system. That's the school system. That's the foster care system. That's child welfare. That's the juvenile system. And they don't see themselves as a part of a system or perpetuating a system. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I don't see child welfare as an obsolete system. I try to engage my peers and understand that we are the system because we're working in it, we're operating it, and we're um, per- pushing out decisions based off of it. And so when I think about what can be done, first and foremost, I have to share with the real fam that, I again, I'm a Black woman who perpetuates the white supremacy culture. Mm. I cannot minimize my perpetuation of it and my contribution to a culture that is impacting my people, my community in a negative way. Mm -hmm. And I say that not flippantly, but with a lot of mindful work and a lot of education myself and diving into this material myself, doing a lot of self-searching and confidence building that it's okay to say that. But now that I know that, what am I going to do about it? And so until I began to focus on the article that Tama Oaken wrote around white supremacy culture, where she lays them all out, provides details and descriptions and anecdotes around them, did I truly understand what this meant? And so, you know, you see, I was born and raised into a white family, mm. white culture, white community, white neighborhood. But that's not why I perpetuate the white supremacy culture. 
I perpetuate it because I went to a public grade school, kindergarten, middle school, high school, college, graduate school. There, at those public institutions, those systems, thinking about who developed them and those stakeholders were developed by people that were taught and insisted that these characteristics should be instilled in us, Mm -hmm. right? These are the ways that we should behave in Western culture. This is what was expected of us. And so although I I was raised in a very white, predominantly white community and neighborhood and family, I don't just attribute it to that. But I do take um, ownership of what I was taught and mindfulness around what do I want to continue to carry with me um, as I move through the world. Um, And and I want to share a little story about, uh, you know, a time where I was in high school. I talk about I came from a very white culture, uh, Eureka, California. And, um, it's very, very um, white in Eureka. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when I left, I left three days after high school graduation, just to put in perspective, I could not get oh. away. Oh, wow. And I was still 17. So very, very high aspirations. Um, that's another story for another podcast, another topic. Um, but, you know, when I think about my high school years and what I experienced, it was an immense amount of racism. Mm. Um, you know, I went to a school where the my peers, this, the high school students had Confederate flags flying out of the back of their pickup truck in the Hick parking lot. Mm. I was yelled slurs, right? Very racial slurs at myself with no uh, changing of the letters. It was what was those mm. slurs. And it was very painful. Yeah. And someone who's always been a doer and an activist and a radical, I took that energy and then created the first ever Black History Month celebration in my school's history. Mm. Rika Senior High School never had one prior to the one that I created as a high school student going there in the 10th grade. Mm. And so when I think about what can be done to build awareness, you know, thinking about there's such a fear when we discuss culture, racism, the white supremacy culture, and and having that fear will disempower, you know, thinking about having that fear and why there's a fear there about how it's going to disempower a few people, right? There's such a discussion around, oh, we can't discuss race because it's going to take away from what we have or disempower someone. Yeah, it's going to make white people feel uncomfortable. <laughs> right. Right. Because there's a right to comfort. That is yeah. another part of the white supremacy culture is the right to comfort, right? There's a need yeah. that I can be comforted and I should not have to be outside of my comfort zone when having discussions, right? And if it's not comfortable to me, I don't have to engage. That's privilege. Mm-hmm. And so thinking about the white supremacy culture and and instead of, you know, if it's just going to dismantle and empower other people, really what we're looking for is to empower, right? Mm-hmm. To empower those voices, as I said before, Try, to empower people that don't have a voice or never had a voice or had a seat at the table, right? I think one of your podcasts you talked about um, like, like, or you, like you've talked about, you know, having seats or having tables and, and mm-hmm. how do we engage people and, and stuff like that. It's not about disempowering. It's about empowering yeah. and talking about racism and talking about diversity and culture is not going to create a weakness, but yet a strength and empowerment for everyone in Western culture. And it'll trickle out if we become really, you know, embracing of that. You know, I, I train people internationally and I trained some people in the United Kingdom and they were very clear on the fact that they knew 
in the United States, racism was such a outwardly thing. Like that mm. is, that's what they thought about us is that we're a country that focuses on racism, that we are a racist country. Mm-hmm. She shared a little bit of how they identified, but I, I won't get to that. I don't know if it's an overarching thing for United Kingdom, but you know, it was really, in this, this was an implicit bias training. And it was really like shocking for me to hear that she was so in tune with the fact that in America, racism is such a prominent thing that impacts our culture that it's known. And I think that's really sad. And I think that empowering others would kind of change that narrative and only empower the United States rather than disempower us. Yeah. And I, I it's just, uh, yeah, you, you brought up a lot of good points there. I mean, I've talked about this um, a lot uh, on, on the pod, but it's just, I, I think having the, what I've always thought was just like really really strange is like oh no we don't talk like no we don't talk about like hard things which is like an incredibly unhealthy thing like that's incredibly unhealthy like any psychologist if you any therapist any counselor would be like yo like we need to like navigate this you know coming from it from like a obviously there's 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 just healthy ways to deal with like conflict and the avoidance or like you know um feeling uncomfortable or like all these different things it's just it is is wild to me that like we're, I'll say not we're as in us, but like we're as a society falling in so easily into a trap of like not wanting to engage in difficult conversations and really like try to understand somebody else. I think I don't leave room or breath for racism, homophobia, transphobia, xenophobia, all those different things, all the obvious. But like when somebody really like says something out of ignorance and like really like really wants to know or is like confused and really ask like I will leave room for that like that there's a very clear and distinct difference between really wanting to understand and get gain perspective then from um then from just being like uh you know racist or whatever you know and it, it's just like um it's exhausting I'm not even gonna say frustrating because like frustrating anger all those different things like it, d- it doesn't encompass all of it but it's like tiring to see these played out tropes that have literally been used over the course of decades over and over and over again like and like and i and it feels like we've probably like gotten off like path but like it just shows how intersectional all of this stuff is and like how it can't not be separated from like you know the work that you're doing the work that i'm doing the conversations that i'm having and all those different things it's just like how important and how crucial if like we had an understanding or a baseline understanding of all these dynamics that happen here like how would that impact our our work or your work in like child welfare welfare you know what i'm saying like if people understood a baseline understanding of like somebody who comes from like a i'll even use like privilege because like you know uh, have a high level of education you got money i mean you even drive a car like first language any of those things that like exist um and not not just the color of your skin like that means something in particular in the american context and so there is some work that we have to do those who are in a more privileged position um White folks, I always say white folks need to be the ones to dismantle racism, um, get rid of those systems, all these different things. But like it is, it, it really is, um, it really does come with a baseline of understanding of like how we got here. <laughs> it really, once you start to learn like and read more about it and see more about it, it's like, whoa, yeah, that's why we're here and where we're at today. Yeah. So, well, let me ask this because you did bring up like your how you grew up and all these different things. What, what made it like, how do I want to ask this? How, 
how did you get to a point where you're like, I'm going to do this? Like, because I'm hearing like you started this club in high school and like where you grew up um, and growing up in an all white family. So like, how did you get to this point of like, you know what? I'm going to do this. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to do this one thing and it's going to be the first ever and I'm going to be a trailblazer and all that stuff. Um, yeah, great question. So it started with uh, me running out of PE class crying. Um, mm. There was an attendance woman who was black. My assistant principal was black, both uh, black females, and um, and addressing it with them. And so I ran out crying. My uh, friend at the time um, ran uh, ran up to the boy and um, and decided to get physical with him. And oh. so um, I think that um, when they saw I wanted to do something different, that's what the direction I was going. And that's what I was talking about was why would he say this? Does he even know what that means? You know, why mm. would he call me that name? Mm. Um, you know, like how this impacts other people and where that name came from. Lots of ignorance. Um, and so I uh, I was talking to them about this and I wanted to do something about it. And with their support and with their um, approval, of course, you know, as admins there and faculty, I was able to go forth with it. And so it meant a lot of long nights at school, um, weekends working. Um, I have vivid memory of cutting up the... Um, the slips that would go. So every morning we would have a, a, an, in the morning announcements, it'd be a fact, something historical. So I did a lot of research around um, black history, um, you know, black pioneers, engineers, um, people who have done the first that's something or created something or developed it. People that are not getting the recognition because whoever funded it gets that recognition, not them. And Mm -hmm. so, um, which is often a white person. And so I would have those fun facts. I remember cutting up the slips and I, and then for each uh, class, for the entire high school, um, 9 through 12, cutting up for each class and making sure there's enough slips for each student so they'd have their own little fact sheet, um, creating an, a, an assembly, which was optional. I ended up having two assemblies each year, and they were both um, packed. So they were optional, but every student and uh, all the teachers brought their classes. We had African drumming. I had home ec class creating um different food samples for my peers mm. for the other so they could taste really, you know, good, um, you know, as, as authentic as it can be coming from home ec, but, you know, yeah. food, <laughs> food that was uh, provided or, you know, shared in, uh, in community and in, in our black culture and our African culture and African-American culture. So, you know, really just um, encompassing that and sharing that history was helped me channel um, my frustration and, um, and so, uh, although I received a little bit of support from the school and the principal and the attendance uh, woman at the time, um, really, it was something internal for me and just a passion that I've always had to uh, create and develop and share and educate. Awesome. And it's turned into you still doing that today. That's incredible. <laughs> Do you think that that's where it started? Um, yeah. Like so- the seeds, you think? be dramatic but I've been a student leader since like sixth grade so. yeah yeah <laughs> so my <laughs> has um just a part of my personality mm. um my uh my connection with my black culture because of course I was raised by white people so I did not have the exposure to um to you know the black culture in a sense um definitely started at that moment I learned as I was sharing and um and you know I got a little bit when I was in San Diego when I went to Cal State East Bay, I had uh, several black professors, um, mm. two black men, uh, which was just the most beautiful thing to see, you know, mm. being 
taught by a black man who um, who definitely is sharing their perspectives on the world. And so uh, that was very influential. And then more recently, I've been doing uh, a lot of work around equity and inclusion mm-hmm. within the child welfare system. And so uh, another uh, person who has created this and really uh, built this curriculum, been happy to be a part of that and continue to share and learn as I'm sharing. Yeah, amazing. And then I know I'm we're pushing up against uh, <laughs> the time I have with you, but uh, you know, I appreciate it. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I would love for you to just share a little bit more about like your consultancy, uh, what you've done, the kind of the kind of work that you have done. Um, yeah, and how and how folks can get connected with that. Um, yeah, I would love to, for you to have give you the opportunity to share that. Thank you. I appreciate um, you giving me the time to do that. So. Yes, check me out. It's Maria Wright Consulting. Um, it's Maria with a Y. I know it's a little different. Um, you know, uh, that's just where my name is coming from. It's from the root of Mary. Um, but I'll digress. So Maria Wright Consulting um, is something that I created in 2019. I started off with one training. Now I have several trainings and I provide uh, training content for agencies that are looking for me to provide the training. So uh, last year I partnered with uh, nine different agencies. And within those agencies, um, I trained many, many agencies, um, over a thousand, uh, participants in my trainings last year, trained internationally, um, Australia, United Kingdom, Canada. Um, this year I've already trained people in, uh, Japan and Dubai and United Kingdom. So really excited for, um, the reach that I have, um, and really infancy stage of my consulting business. I've also facilitated discussions, so I do facilitation when thinking about interagency dynamics. So um, CEOs, presidents, directors, um, upper management level discussions where I'm helping them understand what are their ideas around their contribution to the team and what do they need from the other people. And so through different activities, I help them um, hold these discussions um, through facilitation. And I have... Um, mentoring. So I uh, have a few mentees where they are either graduates or soon to be graduates of a social work program and just someone that they can bounce ideas off of. I'm looking to continue to grow and um, and provide different opportunities. Uh, really excited because my, um, my work has been uh, acknowledged or just really uplifted through the National Black Social Work Association. It's amazing. <laughs> yes, thank you. So I received a chapter individual service award. So as an individual, I received an award for my service um, as a Black professional supporting the Black community. And happy to say I was the only person on the West Coast to receive an award from Nationals last year. So West Coast, West Coast. Let's go. <laughs> and we won't digress from that. Yeah. With that one. Um, so you can check me out, Maria Wright Consulting. Again, that's M-A-R-Y-A, right? And um, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, you can find me on Instagram and I have YouTube. And so if you are looking for a training, uh, just let me know and I'll send you links to trainings that are coming up. If you have six or more people at your agency and you want a training but can't afford it, um, I have agencies that could possibly cover the cost of that. And don't worry where you are because I'm international and I'm excited to meet you. Yes, I love it. Yeah, and I'll plug all of your information in the show notes on where folks can find you, website, LinkedIn, Instagram, wherever you're at, because um, we're connected almost almost all of us. Anyways, well, thank you, Maria. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, your knowledge, your time, 
your story with us. Um, we really, really appreciate it. Um, it was such a pleasure to get to know you a little bit better. And we are also both in the Black Speakers Collection. So I'm sure that there's going to be events where we um, uh, get to know each other a little bit more and uh, potential collaborations further down the road between our two um, companies. So I'm really excited to, uh, yeah, amplify and empower your voice. You know what I'm saying? Um, see what I did there. Anyways, thanks so much, Maria. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I just want to say thank you to you and the Real Talk with Dumont podcast and shout out your consulting business, Common Culture Coaching and Consulting. Thank you for the time and thank you, Real Talk fam. And that's a wrap. Thanks so much for listening, y'all. And just like I mentioned at the top of the show, there are two opportunities that you can greatly support RTWD. The first one is that podcast nomination. Go ahead and write those love letters. Again, that link is in the show notes. And then the second one is nominate um, RTWD for any of the categories that you see listed in the Quill Award um, link there. So that's also going to be in the show notes. Uh, Thank you so much for your support. As always, I will see you next week. This podcast was produced by myself, Jonathan Dumas. Additional production help by the incomparable Lindsay Dumas with music by the oh-so-talented Mr. Tony Deras. And don't forget to like, subscribe, share, and leave a review. It really helps folks discover the show. Till next time, y'all. Peace.